Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. I've become slightly fascinated by the role of the Poet Laureate. I'm thinking specifically in this instance of the Poet Laureate of the United Kingdom. Other countries have them. And it's an interesting job if you're interested in poetry at all. What does the Poet Laureate do? Why do they exist? They get the job uh, nowadays for uh, a 10-year tenure. uh, I feel there's a poem in that, a 10-year tenure. And they don't have any actual obligations, but it's sort of semi-expected that occasionally they'll write poetry about national and particularly royal events. You don't have to if you don't want to. But you know what it's like. You get that sort of job and you think, oh, I ought to do one or two. There's other advantages. You get £5,750 a year and a barrel of sherry. Uh, A barrel of sherry might sound archaic and ridiculous to you, but I used to keep a large bottle of what we used to call loose sherry at my bedside and I used to wake up and uh, drink a relatively large amount before setting out upon my day. And it is surprising how quickly you get through it. I'm not recommending that as a lifestyle. I don't do it anymore. And um, it was my darker days, much as I love them. Anyway, I wanted to talk about these poems, one poem in particular which fits the sort of bespoke Poet Laureate bill. In other words, a a poem about an event, a royal event. And I just want to consider the fact that such a poem can still be really good. I think there's a temptation to think if you write a poem about the royal family because you sort of have to, it will be rubbish. I'm going to disprove that, and my evidence, Exhibit A, is uh, a poem by the current, as I speak, poet laureate Simon Armitage, called The Patriarchs, an Elegy. And this is... Now, what about if I started the, the whole thing with this? This is a poem about the Duke of Edinburgh, You'd have probably already switched off by now, but I actually think this is really good. Well, obviously, I only talk about poems I love on this show because I ain't got no space for negative waves in my life. Okay, so I want to talk about this. It's, it's, I love uh, occasional poetry. What I mean is poetry written for a specific occasion. You get it a lot. I read a lot of 18th century poetry. And someone falls off a stagecoach and somebody writes a poem about it. So it's the idea of almost like just charting life through poetry, which I'm keen on. Anyway, this was a poem written by the Poet Laureate. This, it already been, uh, Simon Armitage had already been Poet Laureate for, I think, two years or more. Yeah, about two years. And so he this was his first crack at a proper royal poem. 
And it was actually published on the day of the Duke of Edinburgh's funeral. So, you know, it's hot off the press. I'm going to read you the first stanza. It's called, as I said, The Patriarchs, an elegy. And it was published in April 21 on the day of the Duke's funeral. The weather in the window this morning is snow. On seasonal singular flakes, a slow winter's final shiver. On such an occasion, to presume to eulogise one man is to pipe up for a whole generation. That crew whose survival was always the stuff of minor miracle, who came ashore in orange crate coracles, fought ingenious wars, finagled triumphs at sea with flaming decoy boats and sidestepped torpedoes. Right. So it begins with the weather. If you're going to go quintessentially... English, I'm thinking also British, before the letters come in, then you're going to talk about the weather. And this was, as I, as I said, in April of 21, and it was still snowing in April, so this is like a fact. And I guess the snow against the window first thing in the morning sets up the idea of, of an, an elegy of sadness. And we can see there, we can see the alliteration, the weather in the window this morning is, so the W sounds, is snow on seasonal singular flakes. So W's and S's, that swirling weathery sound, a slow winter's final shiver, the last shake of the, of the winter before it goes and gives itself up to spring Consequently, we're talking about the last something. And what he's suggesting is the death of a whole generation, a whole type of person here. Because immediately, Armitage goes into, on such an occasion, to presume to eulogise one man is to pipe up for a whole generation. You've done it, Simon. You've done it. And what I mean is, it's hard, isn't it, to write like a good poem about a member of the royal family because the royal family, they don't seem very poetic in lots of ways. I suppose they've been unpoeticised by press coverage, by Twitter attacks and everything else, and now it's it's harder to see them as, as, as poetic. And... When Simon Armitage decided to write this elegy about the Duke of Edinburgh, he must have thought, am I, am I going to get out of this? Because I can't just write it about him. I've got to do something. You know, when people write poetry and it's about something that happened to them that day, but when you read it, because it's brilliantly written, it becomes a universal truth that you also can identify with. I think... Armitage has sort of switched it on this. So I think here we were expecting an individual specific description of this man. And what we're getting is a much more generalised view of a whole generation he seems to 
represent. It's almost like Simon Armitage has gone for a, a quite mournful, sepia version of Where's Wally? So constantly in this poem, you're looking for Philip Mountbatten, the Duke of Edinburgh, but you're finding a group of men, a type of, of men. So let's look at that a bit more closely. We've, we've looked at the, the weather. On such an occasion, to presume to eulogise one man is to pipe up for a whole generation. He talks later about this being a generation who sidestepped torpedoes, and I think Simon Armitage sidesteps the royal poetry torpedo with that line. On such an occasion, to presume to eulogise one man is to pipe up for a whole generation. So... I'm now free to talk about types. That crew whose survival was always the stuff of minor miracle. And it becomes, when I say the Where's Wally thing, I think what happens here now is that you're trying to find what's the Duke of Edinburgh and what is the general species that he represents. That crew whose survival was always the stuff of minor miracle. And I think crew is the right word. He could have said group. But I think what he's after here, Simon Armitage, is that idea of an old black and white British war movie where people say, look, I know wars are damn fool thing but I bloody love this country and I don't want to let the old girl down that kind of thing and we might see that as an old-fashioned and uh, obviously male-dominated culture but when you watch those old black and white war movies with people like Jack Hawkins and James Mason it is exciting still and um I think that the Armitage is very much placing the Duke of Edinburgh amongst those guys, that crew, as he says. So he's stripping away the memories that we might have of the man and he's placing him, certainly initially in the poem, firmly in World War Two, where I have to say he had what they used to call a, a good war, Philip, and uh, was a... Hero mentioned in dispatches and all that. So, that crew's survival was always the stuff of minor miracle who came ashore in orange crate coracles. And that just gives you an idea, I think, of their courage, but of their inventiveness. An orange crate, you know, it's like one of those wooden tray things you get oranges in. And it's a general point that they were... they. It wasn't a time of high-tech war. It was a very makeshift, cockle-shell hero-type war going on. And he represents that. But it, also, um, there was lots of guys who had that sort of, you know, just, we'll, we'll do it, we'll work it out. We'll go uh, ashore in an orange crate. Again, though, there's a specific reference here, I think, I don't know how much you know about the Duke of Edinburgh, but he was born into the Greek royal family and um, things went bad for them very quickly. And with 18 months of his birth, they were exiled and had to flee for their lives. 
And uh, he was placed in an orange crate as a baby. That's how he was transported on this uh, perilous escape. So he did literally uh, come ashore in an orange crate. But there's a bit of where's Wally again, because also the idea of the makeshift escape, the makeshift seagoing craft also fits in with these guys and their endless courage and inventiveness. And he says there... Who came ashore in Orange Crate Coracles fought in genius wars, finagled triumphs at sea. Finagle, fantastic word, because it's the kind of word those guys would have used and we probably don't use so much now. It means, you know, to achieve something by sleight of hand, trickery. And, uh, you know, they were crafty and clever and almost saw it as a bit of a game is the way it comes across, certainly in those old movies so they finagle triumphs at sea that's the end of the line but not the end of the sentence with flaming decoy boats and sidestepped torpedoes now again i happen to know that the duke of edinburgh did exactly that that he was on a ship that was being attacked and he had the idea of setting fire to a decoy boat which might mislead the enemy, and it worked. So it works for the generation as part of their cleverness, finagle triumphs at sea with flaming decoy boats and sidestepped torpedoes. I don't know if he ever actually literally did that, but it sounds right because it's not heroic sounding to sidestep a torpedo. It's more sounds like practical determination. And I think that's what he's trying to get at, Armitage, with this generation, is they don't want laurel wreaths. They want to just show that they can do it, that they are smart enough and clever enough and crafty enough. Okay, the second stanza begins, Husbands to duty. Now, again, that clearly has a significance for the Duke of Edinburgh, because he was a husband to someone who, whether you agree or not, uh, came to be seen as the sort of epitome of duty. Again, it applies to the general generation. Husbands to duty. Now, I love this bit. This is one of my favourite bits. And this is really black and white British war movie stuff. Husbands to duty, they unrolled their plans across billiard tables and vehicle bonnets, regrouped at breakfast. Ah, that's so good. And whatever your feeling is about war or about that sort of male-dominated drama about war, there's somewhat really excited about that. Husbands to duty. So that fits Philip, but also they were married to their duty. Be- behind all this finagling, behind all this glamorous unrolling plans across billiard tables, there is a general sense, I think, of winning the war. In this instance, you know, destroying fascism which is something I think we can get behind. I'm going to give you the whole stanza. It switches now to a slightly different sense. Husbands to duty, they unrolled their plans across billiard tables and vehicle bonnets, regrouped at breakfast. 
what their secrets were was everyone's guess and nobody's business. Great-grandfathers from birth, in time they became both inner core and outer case in a family heirloom of nesting dolls. Like evidence of early man, their boot prints stand in the hardened earth of rose beds and borders. There's a lot happening here, but he's good, isn't he, Simon Armitage? I'm happy for him to be the poet laureate. Although I did once hear him give a speech where he talked about stand-up comedians on poetry nights with their banal truisms dragging the whole thing down. And I sulked for about, it's probably been six or seven years, but here we are. I don't have the stamina to bear a lifelong grudge, I'm glad to say. So I'm I'm pro-armitage now, certainly having read this. Such a difficult task to write a poem to order about a complicated public figure like the Duke of Edinburgh, but I think, great job. Let's look at this bit. What their secrets were was everyone's guess and nobody's business. Now, I think ultimately what he's talking about there is the sort of military secrets, the idea of military intelligence. But you do wonder if there's a suggestion, having set these guys up in a sort of playboy Way. I don't mean the magazine, I mean the lifestyle. They unrolled their plans across billiard tables and vehicle bonnets. And also husbands to duty, maybe rather than their wives, I don't know. Regrouped at breakfast, what went on the night before. I may be reading too much into this, but there is a sense here that what their secrets were was everyone's guess and nobody's business. They're not saints, these guys. Anyway, that's what I'm getting. This is an interesting line. Great-grandfathers from birth. And maybe this is what happens when you're born into something like the Greek royal family. You're already set up as a sort of family stalwart from the beginning. There's no time to be a child, really. It's like history is stretched out behind you, but also in front of you. In time, they became both inner core and outer case in a family heirloom of nesting dolls. That was my doorbell, by the way, not my um, Russian dolls alarm, which goes off whenever I refer to that phenomenon. Great-grandfathers from birth. In time, they became both inner core and outer core. So you've got to imagine those Russian, those nesting dolls, yeah? They are the, the little solid one at the beginning. I guess that's where they became when they were a child, when they were born. And they become the outer case. So they grow from the heartbeat of the family into the protector, if you like. And... They are representatives of the family identity, but also protectors of the individuals in that family. This is slightly more complicated if you're married to the Queen. I mean, I think the title of the poem, The Patriarchs, an elegy, 
It's hard to be a patriarch when your wife is the queen. I think you're always going to be the plus one. But maybe that's a point that's that's being made here. Great-grandfathers from birth, so destiny is on their shoulders from the very beginning. In time, they became both inner core and outer case in a family heirloom of nesting dolls. They become central to their families. The last two lines, like evidence of early man, their boot prints stand in the hardened earth of rose beds and borders. I'm seeing about three things in this. Like evidence of early man again suggests a sort of timelessness, these great-grandfathers from birth. These guys are messing about with chronology a bit. They, they come across like early man because I think they are so steeped in history and tradition, they hardly get a chance to be contemporary individuals. Like evidence of early man, their boot prints stand in the hardened earth of rose beds and borders. So it's kind of like when you find Piltdown Man or some other, I don't know what age he came from, but let's say a Bronze Age uh, remains sort of imprinted in the land, in, in the landscape. Their boot prints stand in the hardened earth of rose beds and borders. Now, that could, again, be part of the family history, the gentler side of those great-grandfathers from birth, maybe doing a bit of gardening. And that, that lives on, that memory lives on, as well as their ceremonial history. That imprint is left also, for me, again, and I don't know if this is my own issue, but we've set them up as kind of playboy types with secrets that was everyone's guess and nobody's business, as if they were the subject of gossip. And to me, footprints in rose beds and borders sounds like someone who, who is jumping out of a window suddenly, having been disturbed by an unexpected arrival. You know, I don't know. Third stanza. There were sons of a zodiac out of sync with the solar year, but turned their minds to the day's big science and heavy questions. Brilliant stuff, Simon. To study their hands at rest was to picture maps showing hatchard valleys and indigo streams Schemes of old campaigns and reconnaissance missions. Last of the great avuncular magicians, they kept their best tricks for the grand finale, disproving immortality and disappearing entirely. Okay. There were sons of a zodiac out of sync with the solar year, but turned their minds to the day's big science and heavy questions. So this generation, I guess, were born into a more superstitious time, if you like, a more religious time. But these were practical men who sidestepped torpedoes and uh, unrolled their plans across billiard tables. And so they didn't quite fit in. They were out of sync with that. 
they turned their minds to the day's big science and heavy questions. So they weren't afraid of modernity, although we're setting them up as timeless great-grandfathers from birth. In that World War II context, which we are focusing on in this poem, they still weren't afraid of the science, the big science. Incidentally, if we want to go back to the Where's Wally thing and is there a specific Duke of Edinburgh thing in this? Look, here's a, here's a thought. Philip was born in Greece in 1921, two years before Greece switched from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar. And uh, as I say, his family was exiled at around the same time. So he was a son of a zodiac out of sync with the solar year. I think my astrology is not great, but it sounds like he was born when the stars were in a challenging position and in a time of social upheaval. He specifically, but as I say, his generation born into a if you like a simpler time, on the cusp of high-tech destruction. Now, what about this for a beautiful image? To study their hands at rest. This is, you know, an old man's hands and an old lady's hands. A lot more interesting than a young person's, a lot more going on. To study their hands at rest was to picture maps showing hatchard valleys. I probably should have checked the pronunciation on that. I know it means sort of cross-hatched, so cross lines to show uh, to show height above sea level or something similar on a map. Look, I didn't come here for ordnance survey work. It's a poetry podcast. To study their hands at rest was to picture maps showing hatchard valleys and indigo streams. Indica because of their veins, of course. Schemes of old... We'll just get that. I don't want to spoil that rhyme. Showing hatchard valleys and indigo streams. Schemes of old campaigns and reconnaissance missions. Last of the great avuncular magicians. So... If you look at their hands, it looks like one of those old maps that they rolled out on billiard tables and vehicle bonnets. And just that, the language in that line, old campaigns and reconnaissance missions sounds so fabulously black and white, World War II, stiff upper lip, British movie. Last of the great avuncular magicians. Magicians, I've known a few magicians very closely and, you know, they're great, but they cannot resist a bit of melodrama in everything they do, you know. You choose a card, it's like you're choosing a, a life partner. But these guys were the last of the great avuncular magicians, uncle-like, smiling, twinkling they were doing amazing things, you know. They were saving ships with flaming decoy boats, but they did it all pretty low-key. They kept their best tricks for the grand finale, disproving immortality and disappearing entirely. And I think 
the reason that seems an amazing trick is you sort of expect immortality from these old heroes, these battle-scarred heroic figures, but they do die and they do disappear entirely. And I think he's saying that the Duke of Edinburgh's death is also the death of this generation, that those guys with those memories and those experiences and those worldviews don't really exist or barely exist anymore. Remember, you're not just talking about World War II veterans here. I'm thinking you're, you're talking about guys who were making decisions and uh, like the top end as far as the pecking order is concerned. But they do die. They're not immortal. And they disappear entirely. Again, going back to the magicians, that's why it's a great trick. They disprove immortality. Again, maybe referring back to that they were out of sync with the solar year and more interested in science and heavy questions than a superstitious population in that they disproved immortality, but they disappeared entirely like, like an avuncular magician's trick. There's one last short stanza now, and this seems to make the death of the Duke, the death of this generation, a bit more cosmic. The major oaks in the wood start tuning up, and skies to come will deliver their tributes. But for now, a cold April's closing moments parachute slowly home so by mid-afternoon snow is recast as seed heads and thistle down right the major oaks in the wood start tuning up the major oaks they sound old don't they they sound solid they sound like they have secrets which are everyone's guess and nobody's business, like they've lived a different life from us. So maybe they're speaking out now on behalf of this generation. The major oaks in the wood start tuning up. They're preparing to herald the end of all this, the death of the Duke, the death of these kind of men. And uh, so they're preparing. The band is getting ready, if you like. And skies to come will deliver their tributes. Now, I kind of thought that that might be to do with, um, I don't know, the red arrow fly past. But as the stanza progresses, I think that changes a bit. But for now, a cold April's closing moment. So we go back now to the beginning of the poem when it's snowing in April, the uh, slow winter's final shiver. But for now, a cold April's closing moments parachute slowly home. And what better ending or not quite ending to the poem is the idea of something parachuting slowly home. These military heroes dying and parachuting slowly home. That is how they should go, isn't it? And we end 
on an optimistic note, I think. So by mid-afternoon, snow is recast as seed heads and thistle down. So it's not snowing come the afternoon. Spring has suddenly sprung and snow is recast. So the role of snow of filling the air has been recast now and the role has been given to seed heads and thistle down. So nature is regenerating itself. These are seeds, airborne seeds are filling the air now instead of snow. And that suggests maybe less of an end and more of a beginning. I could, I suppose, suggest that the fact that these men, whatever we may think of their general lifestyles, their general world views, they did fight fascism and they probably did things that mean that we can now sit around debating the political validity of their lives in a way that we might not have been able to do that, certainly publicly, if, to put it bluntly, Hitler had won. So maybe they went through a kind of winter in order for us to have a spring. That's what I'm thinking. It's a war hero poem, this, and let's face it, if you look into it, the Duke of Edinburgh was a war hero, and it's... It's a good poetic decision, I think, to focus on that. If you look at pictures of him then, I mean, he could be Achilles in the Iliad. He looks great. The Duke of Edinburgh, tall, blonde man. He's, you know, he's, he's absolutely central casting war hero. But it's not about heroics this so much as a generation who just damn well got on with it. I know that's a bit of an old-fashioned worldview now, but there is something admirable about it, and there is something courageous about the way certainly they lived that war, and they did save us from fascism, which... I don't know. Would I be able to do a poetry podcast in... in the bosom of a fascist regime, it might be a little bit different and I'd probably have to wear a shirt and tie. But you'd hope so. So that is my, that is the Patriarch's analogy. And it's part of my current slight sort of obsession with the whole Poet Laureate idea. And I think it proves that you can be an old-fashioned Poet Laureate. You can write a topical poem, if you like, an occasional poem for a royal event, and it doesn't have to make people feel sick. It can be brilliant if it's clever and if it sidesteps the torpedoes. So well done, Simon Armitage. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week.